by the director of music, either to be spoken or sung uh, by the choir in the worship of the temple. So look at it from that perspective. We see David cry out to God for deliverance in his frailty. And we cannot, he cannot extract himself from the situation. So he turns to the Lord in whose strength and protection he relies. There's principles here for us. The first principle we see is where David is weak, the Lord is strong. That's a principle for us. Where we are weak, the Lord is our strength. So keep that in mind. So I titled this message tonight, In the Lord My Refuge Do I Trust. So if you want to please turn with me to Psalm 31. I'm going to read the entirety of it. It's 24 verses. I'm going to read it. Lord, do I break it down together? So here we go. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For in my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who for, for you, those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has, has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. 
I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful and abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. So there it is. In this passage, we're going to see four things. Um, number one, take refuge in the one who is our refuge. Humble confession, number two, and lamentation. Number three, the trustworthiness, love, and the goodness of God. And number four, blessing and encouragement. So let's take a look at number one, the first part. Take refuge in the one who is our refuge, verses one through eight. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Refuge in Hebrew, the word hasa, literally means to flee for protection, to take shelter in. Uh, we see this term refuge, you heard it as we read it, four times in this psalm. So it is a theme. In verse 1, I take refuge. In verse 2, be a refuge. Verse 4, you are my refuge. And verse 19, those who take refuge. So David goes on, let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. So when I was studying this passage or this message, I came across this quote, and it's especially relevant because just last month we did a series on the Reformation in October. Wayne took us through the Reformation. So this quote is relevant in that, and it says the following. Early in the 16th century, this is interesting, early in the 16th century, a German monk and seminary professor named Martin Luther taught through the Psalms, verse by verse, at the University of Wittenberg. In his teaching, he came upon this statement in Psalm 31.1. The passage confused him. How could God's righteousness deliver him? The righteousness of God, his great justice, could only condemn him, Martin, to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins. That's where he landed on the righteousness of God. One night, up in a tower in the monastery, Luther thought about this passage in the Psalms, and he also read, as you know, Romans 1.17, the passage we read tonight, which says, in reminder, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther said he thought about this day and night until he finally understood what the righteousness of God revealed by the gospel is. Luther said, it is not speaking of the holy righteousness of God that condemns the guilty sinner, but of the kind of righteousness that is given to the sinner who puts his trust in Jesus Christ. This changed everything. Luther said of this experience, I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Martin Luther was born again, and the Reformation began in his heart on that moment. One great Lutheran scholar said this, that this was the happiest day in Luther's life. 
That's the righteousness that we are talking about, that David is asking for deliverance. By the righteousness of God, he delivers us. So that's the end of the quote. It's therefore the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel that delivers us by faith. The righteousness of God doesn't just judge and condemn sin. It saves the sinner. This is a magnificent truth, is it not? And it's something we should never get over, ever. So David continues, verse 2. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge. Remember that word. The place where he runs for shelter for me. A strong fortress, literally a house of fortification. Be to me to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And in your, for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. David asked not for his reputation, but for the reputation of God. For his name's sake. God's reputation, save him from his adversity. So have you ever, this is a question, have you ever considered asking God to do something on your behalf for his namesake, for his reputation? It's something we need to think about. God's reputation is online by, by, based on the character of his ability to bring us out of our difficulties that he provides for us to go through. That's his reputation. Verse 4. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Have you heard that before? That's a direct quote that Jesus said on the cross while suffering and dying, Luke 23, 46, as we know. David says this particular quote for the purpose of totally submitting to the will of the Father. He goes on. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Spurgeon put it like this. Redemption is a solid basis for his confidence here. Just the redemption of his issue. Take me out of it. That's a solid basis for his confidence. David had not known Calvary as we have done. But temporal redemption cheered him. And shall not eternal redemption yet more sweetly console us? Past deliverances are strong pleas for present assistance. Do you see that in David's psalms? Past deliverances are strong pleas for present assistance. He knows the character of God in dealing with his difficulties that we see over and over in these psalms. Verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Some texts say you hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, meaning God. It's not an issue for us, though. We, as David, should hate what God hates, right? So it's applicable. Either way, it's translated. He goes on. Even though you, I hate worthless idols, you hate worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Past deliverance is an understanding of the power and character of God validates David's trust. Past deliverances that God has provided validates David's trust in the Lord to deliver him again. That's, a, that's something we need to take into consideration. We get into difficulties all the time. Troubles come our way. God brings them for a purpose. What is our response? How do we respond? Do we see the, the previous vindication of God in our lives and then trust him for the ones that are currently going on? 
That's the, that's the principle. God has repeatedly shown himself trustworthy, has he not? So we respond. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet on a broad place. That's David recounting to God his previous work on his behalf in, the, in his uh, difficulties. Again, David relies on past experiences. He recounts it to God, which produces rejoicing in David. Again, take note of this. When God delivers you from your difficulties, remember it, recount it, and rejoice in it so that when you face the next difficulty, that will be your response, to remember, remind, and rejoice. So the question is, when you're in the midst of a trial, do you trust the Lord enough to run to him as your refuge for protection and shelter? Do you do that? And if so, how so? And if not, will you? So that brings us to part two, humble confession and lamentation, verses 9 through 13. David now returns to confession. This is interesting. It takes humility to admit to God that you have sinned against him, right? You need to humble yourself and confess to God daily your sins. That's parental forgiveness from the Father. That has nothing to do with your salvation. This is what David is getting at. Um, possibly that's why many people don't go to the Father humbly confessing, because it takes humility. It takes a desire to see it the way he sees it and to act on it. The context here is David is coming to grips with unconfessed sin, and you'll see that. He says in verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. He's asking for the grace of God. He isn't asking for deliverance here. He's asking for God's grace, and it's based on what he is feeling and his body is experiencing. So a vibrant relationship with the Father always includes confession of sin. We have to take note of this. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. It is when we hold on to sin and fail or refuse to confess it, it that we, and receive the forgiveness of the Father that David says this, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Your bones don't waste away when you are dealing with your sin with God on a consistent basis. We need to go to the Father. We don't know, obviously, what the particular sins are that David's talking about here. We know the kind of the spectacular sins that David was involved in. Um, the sin of, with Bathsheba, the, the, the census, um, or this was just David letting the sins of daily life build up. And he comes to this point where his bones are wasting away. Whether it was the sin of, uh, with Bathsheba, we don't know, or the census. We do know that the sin affected him physically. Have you ever experienced that? Or that feeling that you're just wasting away? You're just being drained out. 
Um, and have you ever come to that conclusion that maybe I need to do business with the Lord on my behavior, my thoughts, the things that I'm dealing with in my life that I have shielded from the Father? Um, I think it can produce that kind of healing. You know, unconfessed sin becomes a burden. It begins to tap you out. And especially if you are endeavoring, you do, or you are endeavoring to love the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's just part of it. So David goes on to lament in verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an, ob an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Verse 12. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. A broken vessel is useless. It's no good. David is seeing himself that way based on the oppression of what he is going through. And it could involve this, the sin that he was, has been dealing with. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. This is the scheming of, the, of his adversaries. They scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. We know David's history. We know what he experienced, not only from without Israel, outside, but also within, with his own children, with Saul, before that. You know, our experiences might not rise to the level of what King David experienced. I mean, probably they don't. Um, but I think on some level we can relate to being spoken of wrongly by others, we can feel like we're besieged when we're standing firm in issues that other people aren't, and you have to stand alone. You feel like you're being oppressed and, and hemmed in. Um, James Boyce, Boyce puts it this way about David. Um, this was literally true during much of David's reign, as we know. The kingdom was surrounded by hostile neighbors, just as present Israel is surrounded by hostile Arab neighbors. But David may also be thinking of plots within the kingdom by Jewish enemies or of the days he had to flee from King Saul, if you know the story. So the application is, are you allowing unconfessed sin to affect your relationship with the Father? And if so, how will you remedy it? How will you take care of it, deal with it? And number two, when you are oppressed and surrounded, as David was, do you cry out to the Father? for assistance, that you might, when he releases you from it, rejoice in it. Um, we'll talk about in, in trials as we, as we move on. Uh, number three, the trustworthiness, love, and goodness of God, verse, verses 14 through 20. Uh, though David's enemies surround him and he's become a reproach, he makes this confession right here, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Do we make that confession when we're in difficulties? Well, you say, I trust in you. You are my God. You are much bigger than the situation that I'm in. And I know you are dealing with this with me for a purpose. And I want to rejoice in it. Um, he says in verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Spurgeon put it this way. 
If we believe that all our times are in God's hand, which we believe, right? We believe that all our times are in God's hands. That's what he's saying. We believe it. We shall be expecting great things from our Heavenly Father. If we believe that everything is in his hand, we believe and expect that great things are from him. When we get into a difficulty, we shall say, I am now going to see the wonders of God and to learn how secure, surely he delivers them that trust in him. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of a oppression, a trial, a difficulty that you're going through, you say now, I am going to see the wonders of God and to learn again how surely he delivers them that trust in him. Wouldn't that be refreshing when we go through difficulties to have that perspective? Um, this should be our expectation as well. We need to consider how we respond to trials and difficulties in our life if we are to have this perspective. We should be anticipating the great things God will do because of the trials and difficulties he brings to us. David goes on in verse 16. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. David speaks in defense of those, including himself, who love the Lord, when he says, let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David asked God here to shut the mouths of those who speak against God's own. He's defending those who are righteous in Christ. Do we do that? Listen to David, who's experiencing severe trial as he recounts the goodness of God. Listen, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked out or worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. That's what God does for those that trust in him and look to him as their refuge. The words of adversaries can produce great stress, can they not? When people talk, they can create huge damage in your life. And many of you can have, have examples of that. So I think we can relate. James 3.6, we know. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's the tongue. And the tongue of adversaries can destroy. So David is mentioning that. We are safe in the shelter from the strife of tongues. We understand that. The tongue can be destructive, as we know, and it must be bridled. In what ways, then, are you endeavoring to bridle or take your tongue under control? We need to think about that. So that brings us to the last, fourth and last part, blessing and encouragement, verses 21 through 24. David blesses the Lord here for his love, protection, and response to his pleas. 
he, then, then he encourages us to love the Lord as he does. So he blesses the Lord for what the Lord has done for him, and then he encourages us to love him as he does. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. David most likely was in a besieged city. He understands what that means, and he truly experienced the steadfast love of the Father in the midst of it, and he can recount it with rejoicing and encourage us. Um, what besieged city are you in right now? What's, what's happening in your life where you feel like you're in the midst of it? And are you seeking the steadfast love of the Father in it? Verse 22. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. When David felt abandoned at that moment is when he cried out to God. He felt alarm. I'm cut off from your sight. Do we do the same when we, or do we wallow in misery and bitterness in our trials and difficulties? Or do we go, I'm alarmed. I feel alone. I will cry out to the Lord and look for his steadfast love in it. That is the renown of our Father that we are seeking. You do on my behalf because I am your righteous son by your son, not anything of my own. So we cry out. David continues, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. There's the answer. He's alone. He cries out. I'm alone. I'm cut off. But I, you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for help from you. That's, what we, that's an example to us, is it not? That's the example that we should take when we are in the midst of difficulty. Um, because the Lord heard David's pleas for mercy, David encourages us all to, verse 23, love the Lord, all you, his saints. Be reminded of God's love and care for us. He is our refuge. He hears our pleas for help. He provides abundantly for us. Spurgeon puts it in the negative. Listen. Do we, if we are called the saints of the Lord, need to be exhorted to love him? If we do, shame upon us. And we do, I am quite sure. So let us be ashamed and confounded that it should ever be needful to urge us to love our Lord. And I think that would be true if we responded to our difficulties in the way David has been showing us, in this, God has been showing us through his servant David, right? So let's take note. He, he also, we, we should love him because David goes on, the Lord preserves the faithful. The Lord preserves the faithful. So Yadik asked a question, what does it look like to be faithful to the Lord? What is that? You know, we all kind of have our ideas, but... Maybe it's worth meditating on and thinking about what is faithfulness that God preserves us. Um, and it, I, you know, I was thinking about it, and I believe it encompasses all that the redeemed do in response to what the Lord has done for us. And it includes we love him, we love his church, 
we worship him, we believe him, we trust him, we honor him, we pursue him, we obey him, we take refuge in him, we seek his wisdom and his kingdom, we bear his spirit's fruit, we serve him. I mean, the list can go on and on. That's what you need to examine yourself. Put yourself in that and go, where am I in the faithfulness to God? Do I love what he loves? Do I hate what he hates? And so we ask ourselves these questions to see if they're true of us. We need to consider, are we among the, Lord, the ones that the Lord preserves? And we know that he preserves us based on his character, but there is faithfulness involved. There is a response to the righteousness of God being imputed to our account. There's a response. So we examine ourselves. How are we doing? What is important to me in this life, this window of opportunity that God has given us to be found faithful, knowing that he preserves the faithful? Conversely, um, David goes on to say, not only does the Lord preserve the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. We know from 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, which says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. He's not just saying generally. He says all of you. I like that. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So the question is, how does God repay the one who acts in pride? That's what he said. How does God do it? Well, the answer is from the passage in 1 Peter. He opposes them. You don't want to be in the crosshairs of the mighty hand of God's opposition. So we humble ourselves. We do. We're doers, not just hearers only. So David ends this song by encouraging us and by making an assumption about us. So he encourages us, and then he makes an assumption about us. Listen, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Be strong and let your heart take courage. That's the encouragement. He says this to all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. There's the assumption right there. He assumes that those who take refuge in the Lord, who trust in the Lord, are also those who wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31, very familiar. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. That's truth. Those are principles, again, that we take from this passage of David's song. So we see these several principles, and we can apply them to our life from this song. Here's one. God is our refuge. We should run to him when we need strength and help. Number two, the gospel is magnificent. We should never get over it, ever. Number three, when we are besieged with difficulties and trials that God ordains, 
we should joyfully expect him to do great things both in us and through us as a result. That's his character. That's his nature. He does in us what we can't do in the midst of the trials that we don't want. So we trust him with them. Number four, God preserves the faithful. We should examine the depth of our faithfulness to him. Number five, God opposes the proud. We should humble ourselves and and confess our sins daily. Not just to him, but we confess one to another. That's what we're trying to get the guys to do. Get together and get this stuff out and deal with it. That's humility. Uh, Leadership in God's eyes are the humble. That's, that's not popular. <laughs> we need to embrace it. Number six, God renews the strength of those who wait on him. So we should wait. So there's, there's many more, but that's good enough. Let's pray. Father, we see in this passage that you are a fortress. You are our refuge. You are our righteousness. You provide righteousness to us on our account. You save us. You redeem us. You protect us. You provide for us. Um, We see that you are a God that lifts up the humble. You are a God that opposes the proud. We take note of these things, Lord, and then we ask you to help us to be well-pleasing to you in responding to these things, Lord. So be with us. Help us, Father. Let our desire be to be well-pleasing to you in the, in the window of time that you've given us on this planet. Let it be our heart's desire to not only be well-pleasing to you, but be worshipers of you who follow hard after you, that looked forward to the day when we will see you again. So come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for our last song? And if you'd grab your hymns, hymnals, let's turn to...